All right, let's open our Bibles to um, Isaiah 28. I'm going to try to make it through 28, 29, 30. 31's kind of short, but I want to dive right in because some of these chapters are rather long. This chapter begins here an entirely new section. Uh, the prophecies, which were totally future, are included in chapters 24 through 27. And uh, we were talking about that in the last couple of weeks. From chapters 28 to 35, we're going to have a pronouncement of six woes that are going to be mentioned. Um, these prop- prophecies have a local application, past tense, and then they have a, a future. And this has been a pretty common theme as we've been making our way through the Bible, that it talks about actual prophecies that are going to happen to Israel, and then adding on to that what's going to happen to them during the tribulation and in the kingdom age. Uh, This new section here, the chapters before us, really is a really good example or an illustration of the combination of the near and far view. And we want to be sensitive to that as we are studying the prophets, that the Holy Spirit does both. In one verse, he can switch gears, and he'll be talking about current events. In this case, he'll be talking about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, but it won't be for another 100 years. Uh, He'll be talking about the destruction of the northern kingdom um, that fell in 721 B.C. by a king named Shalmaneser. He was a king of Assyria. And one of the things we want to learn as we go through the study tonight is the prophet Isaiah is going to use the northern ten tribes, is going to be referred to as Ephraim, hopefully that as he speaks and prophesies to Jerusalem and Judah, that they would learn their lesson from the mistakes that the ten northern tribes made. And that is one of the key things that he's going to try to get their attention as we get into these chapters So in the first four verses, it says, here's the first woe. Again, there's six woes between this chapter here and chapter 35. And so woe to the crown of the pride to the drunkenness of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is the head of the verdant valleys to those who are overcome with wine Behold, the Lord has a mighty hand and a strong roll, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of many waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. Ephraim was full of pride and um, drunkenness on top of it. So as a crown of pride, uh, the, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot and a glorious beauty in a fading flower which is the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, uh, which is a, an observer sees, he eats it up while he is still in the land. So the idea in this context of um, the ten tribes are soon to be taken. They're soon going to fall. And again, they did fall to Assyria in the year was 721 B.C. And it was because of their pride. The terminology of uh, the drunkenness of Ephraim is more of a drunkenness of how arrogant they were and how indifferent they were to the warnings that the Lord would bring to them. Uh, Beginning with verse 5, we switch gears. Now here's one of the places that you want to be sensitive that is talking about what's going to happen shortly to them. But now in verses 5 to 13, we find this far distant judgment. Now the prophet begins to move into the future. The expression in that day is a reference to the day of the Lord, which we've been talking quite a bit about. Um, The day of the Lord, again, has at least 13 different titles to it. I know I'm being repetitive, but that's how we learn. Uh, The time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, Tribulation, Jesus called it. The indignation, I made reference to that. But here, when it says in verse 5, in that day, it is a reference to the day of the Lord, which begins the great tribulation, and it extends through and into the millennium. So beginning with verse 5, we've, we've now talking about 
distant future. We're up to the verse four, it's talking about woe to you Ephraim, woe to you northern tribes, because you are gonna be taken into captivity. So let's pick it up now between verses five and 13. In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But they also have erred through wine. And this is not now a spiritual application. This is literal, full-on drunkenness to the point where they're vomiting. And as we read in verse 8, to the point that the place is a mess because of the vomit and the filthiness so that no place is clean. So in verses um, uh, 7 through 8, they have completely given themselves over to this where all they can, can do is make a mess through their intoxication. And it is of the worst form of drunkenness. Verse 9, whom will he teach knowledge and whom will make to understand the message? Those weaned from milk. Now this is a question and we're switching gears here on how he wants to teach them, but yet, uh, and this is where we're going on Sunday, and so important that you understand the Bible, the whole Bible, and understand the whole counsel of God. And there's only one way that this can be accomplished. I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happening on the northern borders of Saudi Arabia. Uh, breaking news, we've been following it for two days, and none of the local CBS or Fox, nobody's even touching it. Well, I just saw the first breaking news of it tonight before I came to the study, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But unless you have a biblical perspective and understanding that part of God's big plan is over and over again, he's talking about uh, the day of the Lord. We explain why the church can't be here, why the world will be judged, but then, right at the end of the tunnel, the great millennium age. Now, a lot of people do not have a clue, and these are good Bible-believing churches, of what is happening and just how late it is right now. And the reason they don't is they don't take what we're going to need read next, which is absolutely vital as we read about how this should be done. Whom will he teach knowledge? That's a question. And whom will he make to understand the message? How is he going to get the message across? Those just weaned from milk. And the idea there is, um, you know, baby Christians not ready for the meat, learning their ABCs. In Hebrews 6, uh, it actually says, he was scolding these older Christians, Paul was. He says, leaving the elementary principles of turning from dead works. Well, that's what you do when you become a Christian. You turn from dead works, you turn by faith, it says, to Jesus, you learn to walk by faith. Then it says, the doctrine of baptism. Well, what do you mean I need to be baptized? I was baptized when I was six months old. Well, no, that's a choice that you make when you say the old life is dead and I have this new life. And then the last ABC is and eternal judgment. So you have four things there. Uh, The elementary principles, the ABCs. So we tell a new person when they become a believer in Jesus, you know, here's what you need to do. You need to have daily devotions. This is Christianese. You need to get what we call rooted and grounded because the Bible teaches the devil's going to do everything in his power to undo what you just did. That's the parable of the sower. The seed was sown, immediately comes the devil, tries to take the seed out of your heart unless you would believe and be saved. So the question here is those just weaned from milk, are they going to get it? No. They need to grow. The only way to grow is, verse 10, precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. In other words, if you're going to become rooted and grounded, there's no shortcuts. People have gotten away from teaching the word of God in a very simple manner, and they've gravitated towards topical studies that don't lay out God's overall plan for your life and what he has planned uh, and what can't be changed, what can't be 
unfulfilled. Everything that's written in the scripture has to be fulfilled. Well, how do you learn it? Well, what you're doing tonight, line upon line, one verse by verse, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And that's how we supplement. Wednesday night is sort of a, you know, it's hump day. (laughs) And um, we're here because we know we need to be here. And we know that um, we have a deeper understanding of what it means to labor in the Word, to actually go through all these books of the Bible and see how they dovetail together. And um, the Lord showing us what happened in the past, but also what's going to happen in the future. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to his people. I have a cross-reference here, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 14, the whole chapter is given to the use and abuse of uh, the gift of tongues and how things should be done decently and in order. Now, in Mary's update on Sunday, you know, she was talking about the Alpha Course and what it's gravitated into and, and just what its roots were and how weird it has gotten. And one of the things she quoted is that um, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is self-control. In the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 14, it says, let all things be done decently, and in order. And what happens naturally, once you've had a taste of um, just teaching simply the Word of God simply, uh, things begin to gel, and there, there's a cohesiveness that, that you begin to mature. You're being weaned from the milk of the Word into the meat of the Word. Most Mainline Protestant, all of mainline Roman Catholicism, uh, will tell you that they do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. They will allegorize it. They will spiritualize it. They say it's sealed. You can't understand it. Well, the very name Revelation means to unveil. I mean, it's the whole meaning of the book. And the Lord says, blessed is he who reads this book. This book is special. And having an understanding of Daniel and Revelation right now, um, if you don't, uh, then you're going to get caught up in the whole ecumenical move. I saw a commercial tonight with uh, Coach McCarthy and some uh, Catholic priest having this men's conference on there, and it's got ecumenical written all over it. And some, are, some of you are thinking, so, so what's wrong with that? Well, whenever you take and water down in this case, blending Roman Catholicism and call it a Christian event, um, Roman Catholicism is not biblical Christianity. Who's brave enough to say amen at this point? Okay, it's not. And you just need to call a spade a spade. And the Pope is traveling all over the world doing everything he can to be everybody's best friend so that everybody will find their way back home to Rome. And that's where it's all headed. The Bible preaches a one-world religion is going to be set up. Revelation 17, the last verse says that city is um, the city of Rome, city of seven hills. Anyway, there's a little sidetrack. Uh, We'll be coming back to that, this one verse here. Uh, To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. And that's the way it is today. People don't want to labor in the word. They don't want to take the time because it takes discipline uh, to do it. Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. Uh, For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. So now as we get into these Verses here um, are talking about a destruction that comes upon the whole earth. That can only be future. All these judgments thus far have been local. But this one is clearly a verse that deals with um, the tribulation. And um, I guess uh, I, I liked one of McGee's comments on here. I want to see if I can find it. Up to verse 14. Anyway, verse 14 is a destruction determined upon the whole earth. Give ear and hear 
my voice, listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day long to sow? Does he keep turning the soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, uh, plant the wheat in rolls, the barley in its appointed place, and the spillet in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For by the black cumin is not threshed with the threshing. This is sort of a, a, sort of a parallel of um, um, the judgment of the, the tares and the wheats. And they're both growing together. And we, we sort of have that in mind here as the Lord is um, eventually going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And um, part of that process is during the great tribulation period. Verse 28, uh, bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with a cartwheel or crush it with a horseman. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in his guidance. So the final, uh, this final judgment here is uh, in reference, we have the first couple verses in 28 dealing with the Assyrian forces and um, their fall and then how he would have liked them to have listened to the word of God, but they did not. Uh, The word of God was given unto Israel precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. It was the daily grind of getting into God's word. What happened? Well, Israel did not follow through. They fell backwards. That is, they were in a backslidden state. And there are many Christians in the same condition today. It's not that they are weaker than anybody else. It's simply that they do not spend enough time in the word of God. And I realize that this method is not very exciting. It's not. It's not happy clappy, it's not jumping over the pew, and it's not putting on a show. It's actually sitting down, opening your Bible, and following along, and uh, that's really what we're all about. But if you don't do that, um, line upon line and precept upon precept, it's really the only way, let me emphasize that, it's the only way to grow in your Christian life. Um... Whenever Judy and I are down in the Phoenix area, they got about six or seven Christian stations that are designated just for Christian TV. And I bought one of those antennas for 50 bucks, and you can get them all for free, whatever's in the Phoenix area, and they have a lot of them. So I look at this stuff, and I go, why would anybody in their right mind ever want to become a Christian when they see this, this sideshow that's being put on, and uh, um, this is what we're up against. Because the average Joe looks out and goes, they're crazy, or they're on the take. And an average, anybody can, can see through it so quickly and um, have the attitude, why would I, I want anything to do with that? Uh, reviewing verses 14 to 20, it's um, in this section here. It's talking about um, a short bed in fourteen, um, and um, the idea there is uh, that judgment from God will come. It didn't come for Judah. Now this is in the south for about a hundred years, but it finally came. And then I get in 21 through 28, the tribulation, and 26 through 29, actually into, into the kingdom age where they go through this threshing. All right, let's go into chapter 29. The theme here is Jerusalem. And the prophecies of the immediate future are going to be seen at first, and then reaching on uh, in, into the kingdom. So let's look at... Uh, Ariel here is uh, simply a reference um, to Jerusalem. And um, we know so because it says the city where David dwelt. And year to year, 
lest feasts come around, yet I will distress Jerusalem or Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. I will encamp against you. I will lay siege against you with a mound. I will raise a siege work against you. You will be brought down. You will speak out of the ground, and your speech will be low out of the dust. Your voice will be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitudes of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that pass by. Um, Now these verses here, up to verse 6, yes, it will be an instant, and suddenly you'll be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and a great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire, and the multitude of all nations who fight against Ariel. Now what Isaiah is doing here with these verses, um, and following it all the way up, let's follow it up to um, even verse Eight. Well, let me just stop here. When it says all nations, the two that come to mind that had the biggest impact, of course, was when Assyria laid siege to it. And um, they did learn from um, the ten tribes not to look to Egypt or trust in Egypt for help. The Lord tells them not to do that. I think it's... 25, 26, or 27 times that Israel, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. It's been destroyed and rebuilt that many times. So here uh, we have Babylon eventually going to take them, but um, if we make our way down to verse 8, let's read 7, the multitude of all nations who fight against Jerusalem even all who fight against her in her fortress and distress her. She'll be as a dream in a night vision. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and he looks and he eats, but when he wakes, his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and looks, he drinks, but he wakes, and indeed he's faint, and his soul is still craving. So the multitudes of all nations who shall be will fight against Mount Zion. And when we go to, to Israel, they, the, our guides tell us uh, how many times um, over the years Jerusalem has come, been destroyed, come, been destroyed, rebuilt, who owned it for some period of times, taken even into the times of um, the Turkish Empire. Of course, we had the Crusades, and again, the battle. When we go to um the Pool of Bethesda, um, one of the things that's unique about this particular place is um, a Muslim church called the Church of St. Anne. And um, it's actually built by the crusaders and the acoustics. Oh my goodness. We go in there and what we do is we just sing. And it reverbs in such a beautiful way that you can sing the simplest song. And if you just stop, it goes on and on and on and on. Well, it's extremely rare because when the Muslims took it back from the Christians during the Crusades, they destroyed the entire city, except they didn't destroy the Church of St. Anne. And the reason is, is over the door, as Christians, what they did is they created a Muslim school. So when the Muslims came to destroy the building, they, they didn't have the heart to do it because they were actually, it was dedicated to teaching their kids. So it remains. Everything else has been destroyed. If, if you want to walk on a, on, a, on a street where Jesus walked, you can, but you've got to go down at least 30, 40 feet. And we do. And uh, you can go down to ground level. You can see the original Via Della Rosa, 
where they would have taken Jesus from the Antonio Fortress, and there's portions of that street that lead out to what would have been the Damascus Gate, and um, it's still there, but you gotta go through all these layers of ruins and all the wars and the times that, that it's been uh, destroyed. Of course, the last big one that's recorded was uh, 70 AD. All right, that brings us to um, verse nine. So the multitudes of all nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. Now this one here is a reference to the final one that's going to happen. So let's just do a, a quick, um, quick turn and go to the book of Zechariah chapter 14. And let's bring it up to current times. And this will be a good time for me to get a little sidetracked before I read this. Um, we got this from a prophecy upside, uh, website uh, yesterday and today, this is breaking news. Uh, as I speak this evening, Saudi Arabia has 350,000 soldiers, 20,000 tanks, 2,500 warplanes, 460 military helicopters, and they're all massing in Saudi Arabia for a military exercise that is being called Northern Thunder. According to the official announcements, forces are being contributed by, and I'll catch this, it's not just Saudi Arabia, but the United Arab Emirate, that's where Dubai is, a lot of money there, Egypt, Jordan, uh, Bahrain, Sudan, Kuwait, Morocco, Pakistan, uh, Tunisia, Omar, Quarter, uh, and then several other nations. They say that the exercises will reportedly last for 18 days, and during that time, the airspace over northern Saudi Arabia will be closed to air traffic. This will be the largest military exercise in the history of the region. I just let that set in. We're talking that they're, they're on, a, they're on a, the northern border. Um, and it comes amid rumors that Saudi Arabia and Turkey are preparing for a massive ground invasion of Syria. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of this because this is cutting edge, and um, I'm sure tomorrow night uh, Barry Stagner and Mike McIntosh will be talking about what I'm talking about tonight on World News Briefing. So if you want to follow this further, which I really encourage you to do, it's hischannel.com. Click on World News Briefing, and I'll bet you any money the main topic that they'll be talking about was what they were starting to report on the news tonight. Because this is the southern part of it, but there's a northern part of it too. Let me just read a little bit farther. If you're going to gather forces for an invasion, this is precisely how you do it. Governments never come out and publicly admit that forces are moving into position for an invasion ahead of time, so military exercises are a common excuse that gets used for that sort of a thing. If these exercises actually um, being used uh, for an excuse for a mass forces near the northern Saudi border, then we should expect an invasion to begin within the next couple of weeks. If it happens, we would expect to see the Saudi coalition storm through western Iraq into Syria from the south, and it's likely that Turkey will come in from the north. Well, what happened yesterday is for two hours, Turkey did a really gutsy thing, and they started bombing uh, one of the major cities because Russia was giving uh, them uh, the ability to take this particular city. So now, for Turkey to do this, there's sort of a lull right now. What's Putin going to do? Is he going to back off a little bit, or is he going to step it up a little bit? Let me read a little bit fur- uh, further. Now, if this happens, and Turkey gets involved in the north, now you have Turkey coming in from the north, and you have Saudi Arabia coming up from the south, 
The goal would be to take out the Assad regime before Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah could react. Now, for the past couple of years, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and their allies have been funding the Sunni insurgency in Syria. And they are counting on those insurgents to be able to take down the Assad regime by themselves. What they weren't planning on is Russia to come down and put boots on the ground and have their largest warship ever created sitting in the Mediterranean with a couple of their subs. You see, the truth is that ISIS was never supposed to lose in Syria. Saudi Arabia and her allies have been funding massive amounts of money to, to ISIS, hundreds of millions of dollars of ISIS oil. That gets shipped into Turkey where it's sold to the rest of the world. ISIS is the wealthiest terrorist organization that has ever existed because it can take this oil and put it through Turkey and um, it's put at, uh, that's the reason, one of the reasons our oil prices are so low right now. The major Sunni nations wanted ISIS and the other Sunni insurgent groups to take down Assad. That was their job. In the aftermath, Saudi Arabia and her allies intended to transform Syria into a full-blown Sunni nation. So again, what this comes down to is the Sunnis against the Shiites. And uh, again, it's the greatest humanitarian crisis since World War II, what's happening right now. And it's only getting worse as I speak. Aleppo was once the largest Oh, uh, let me read this one paragraph first. But then Russia and Iran stepped in to assist the uh, Assad regime. Russian air support completely turned the tide of the war, and now the Sunni insurgents are on the brink of losing. And this is unthinkable for Saudi Arabia. Aleppo was once the largest city in Syria, and Sunni insurgents have controlled it since 2012. But now, relentless Russian airstrikes have made it possible for Syria, Iranian, and Hezbollah ground forces to surround the city, and it's about to fall back into the hands of the Syrian government. If this happens, the war will essentially be over. Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and their allies have invested massive amounts of time, money, and effort to overthrow Assad, and they aren't about to walk away now. So now the unthinkable. If the war was to end right at this moment, a weakened Assad regime would remain in power, and that means Iran and Hezbollah would be the dominant powers in the countries for years to come. And once Assad died, it would be inevitable that Iran and Hezbollah would attempt to transform Syria into a full-blown Shiite nation. This is something that Saudi Arabia and Turkey want to avoid at all cost. So what's their option? So they're actually considering what was once absolutely unthinkable, a massive ground invasion of Syria. I can't read on. I have four more pages that get more into what's unfolding, and I got about five minutes of it on the news tonight. So I would encourage you, as we get into talking about um, what's really going on from a, a, from a biblical perspective, is who is in the middle of all this? And the answer is Israel. And um, we know that uh, Isaiah 17 has not yet been fulfilled, and we're actually probably watching right now the fulfillment of that prophecy. And it could literally happen within a a week's time. And that is Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1. Damascus will cease from becoming a city. It's never been fulfilled. Isn't it something to think, that we're sitting here watching something that was written over, what, 2,500 years ago, and we're watching it unfold right before our eyes? Except, you want to know what, gang? You're some of the few people that actually get it. Because when you do the line upon line, precept upon precept, now we're in Zechariah 14, and what are we studying tonight? Well, the prophet Isaiah says, uh, Jerusalem is going to get hammered a lot. Assyria is going to try, and, but they did the right thing and they learned their lesson. They didn't do what their brothers up north did. 
And the Lord saved him, and we'll get to that before the study's over. And, um, and then it comes to the final one that the, is, we read about so often. So Zechariah chapter 14. By the way, if you want to get a copy of this, I'd be happy to give you the website if you just want to call the office. So be glad to give it to you. If you're in Zechariah 14, let's just read the first four verses. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. I will gather all nations. Remember it said many nations are going to come at the end. I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. A major theme in the Old Testament. The city will be taken. Uh, The houses rifled. The woman will be ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then, of course, it goes into the second coming. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And when the battle is over and he comes with his blood-stained garments from Basra, which is where Petra is, and that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. This is will be a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1. When the Lord finished his earthly ministry, he was bodily taken from the Mount of Olives. And they all saw him. And uh, two angels appear and talks to the disciples and says, Hey, you men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into heaven? It says, This same Jesus, the very one that you're seeing right now, the same Jesus is going to return to exactly the same spot. And here is the fulfillment of it. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move towards the north and half the mountain towards the south. I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I sat on the board with uh, a city councilman named Annette Hoffman. I've told the story. Some of you have heard it. And um, we were waiting for the other board members, this is in Jerusalem, to show up. And um, she's a full-on feminist, radical. <laughs> and I'm a born-again Baptist. A born, born-again Baptist, I bet you didn't know that. I'm a born-again, Bible-believing Christian. I was sure I wasn't going to like her, and she was sure she wasn't going to like me. And uh, she reminded me so much of my early days that we hit it off pretty good. And, um, and she said, so what did you do today? And I said, well, I had coffee with Rabbi Richmond, head of the Temple Mount Institute, and we talked about things. She said, you know Rabbi Richmond? I said, yeah, I know him. I know him. And I said, so what did you talk about? Well, we talked about the temple. And then she says, well, I suppose that... Uh, you think it's going to be destroyed. And I said, well, I don't know about that, but I do know there's going to be an earthquake on there some, on the Mount of Olives someday. And she looked at me, and her, her jaw dropped. She says, how do you know that? And I said, well, because of Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. And she says, really, that's in the Bible. And I said, yeah, why do you ask? I said, well, she said, well, because we spend more money bringing in geologists to study the fault underneath the Mount of Olives because when it goes, it's going to be a big one. And we have flyers already made up to tell the people what to do when it happens. But I want to know how you know. And she actually said, would you ever consider coming down to the Knesset and giving a Bible study? Now, I couldn't believe I heard, heard that, but um, I do know that I gave her um, Joel Rosenberg's book, about Ezekiel 38, and I know that she's read it. So, that the reason that we have insight that they know about, but we have a biblical perspective of when it's actually going to happen. They're preparing for it. And they said that at that time they're actually spending more money in looking into that than they were preparing for terrorist attacks on buses in, in Israel. All right, that was a sidetrack. Back to the study. Let's go back to um, Isaiah 
And we are in chapter 29, and we are in verse 10 through 14 now. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Pause and wonder. Blind yourself and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of a deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he says, I can't, for it's sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please, and he says, I'm not literate. Therefore, the Lord said, inasmuch as these people, they draw near to me with their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but they've removed their heart far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the commandments of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among the people, a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise shall perish and the understanding of their prudent will be hidden. Now these are interesting verses because they're missing the forest for the trees. Question, what is the first and the greatest commandment? That's what the rich young lawyer asked Jesus and, uh, or, or what he had to do. And he answered, well, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, that without love, nothing else matters. Good time for an amen. Without love, nothing else matters. So they were going through the actions. And, uh, but it was all mouth service and no heart service. And the Lord says, I'm not interested in your lip service, your heart is removed from me. And what he's looking for with Israel, again, he wanted a people that would be totally separated and that would represent him on planet Earth. That was what Israel was supposed to do. Well, what did they do? Well, it didn't take long for the 10 northern tribes to completely become heathen and completely adopt all the customs. And um, Judah would fall a hundred years later. But uh, they're, they're learning something here, and the Lord's going to save them once, but not the second time. But this blindness here, because it's not coming from here, and they haven't been listening to the prophets, they will read it and they go, I don't get it. What's, what's this? Uh, explain it to me. Romans 11, verse 25, talking about Israel and its overall view. I can't understand. I always ask my Jewish friends that aren't saved if they would please sit down and just read Daniel 9 and let it speak for itself. It's not rocket scientist. Just read it, and you can only come up with a simple explanation that there's a day appointed that the Messiah is going to come. It says so, and it even tells you the time. And But there there's a blindness, a dullness, it says here in these verses, where it's sealed, and um, they become dull in their hearing. They're staggering like they're intoxicated, but not with drink, but a, but a stupor of a deep sleep that has closed their eyes. In other words, they can't see what's going on. So Romans 11.25, I would not, brethren, that you would be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. He's allowed this blindness to, uh, they didn't understand when the Lord came the first time because of this blindness that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. In part, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. In other words, the Lord's gonna take away the blinders when the Lord takes out the church. The fullness of the Gentiles is a reference to the rapture. It implies that there's a set number. And when that last person gets saved, we're out of here. And then 
I happen to personally believe that this is going to happen somewhere around the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. And if you ask me why I believe that, if you read the last verse of Ezekiel 39, it says when all the battle has happened and all the cleanup is done, the last verse says, and then the spirit of the Lord was upon Israel. Well, where was it before? Well, it was upon the church before, but now it's upon Israel. Now it's upon a couple of guys named the two witnesses. It's on 144,000 zealots that are all Jews, and they're all preaching the gospel, and thus many in Israel will be saved. Um, there's a, we could make an application to the church today also that they're, they're blinded because they, they don't do um, um, in-depth studies in the scriptures. All right, let's finish out this chapter, 15 and 16. We've made it down to... Um, Verse 14 says, Woe to those who uh, sink deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, Who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have turned round. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say to uh, him uh, who made it, he did not make me, or the thing formed, say to him who formed me, he has no understanding. So in, in these verses here, we switch again now um, to a, a future event. It, is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon will be turned into a, a fruitful field? So the Lord looks at this period of time now. He jumps again, and please be conscious of this. We're talking about uh, local judgment, but now in verse 17 through the rest of the chapter, we're clearly diving into the future. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And a fruitful field will be esteemed as a forest. In that day, the death will hear the words of the book. And the eyes of the blind will see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord. And the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Clearly, kingdom age. Where um, the one that couldn't hear, the blindness was there. Now they'll say, let us go up to the house of the Lord and, um, and hear him. Uh, verse 20, for the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who makes a man an, uh, an offered by a word and, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and turns aside the just for a thing of naught. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not be ashamed, nor fa- shall his face grow pale. But when he sees his children and the work of my hands in the midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob, and they will fear the God of Israel. Those who err in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmured will learn doctrine. Blindness for a while, but he tells them and he jumps into the future. That's not the way it's always going to be, because in the kingdom... Uh, all that darkness, that veil that's there, uh, they will be the ones that will have the insight and the understanding. Let's see how far we can get. 30 and 31, here Judah is admonished not to turn to Egypt for help against Assyria because Assyria is going to come with them. And here Isaiah, in a nutshell, let me give it to you, is going to say don't make the same mistake that your sister in the north made in trying to get help from Egypt. And uh, the Lord is admonishing them, saying don't do that, and he exhorts them to instead wait and trust on the Lord. Now there's all kinds of applications for you and I here. The temptation to manipulate a battle, to have the outcome 
come out your way. Try in your own means to get things to work out instead of praying, instead of trusting the Lord. And a, a real part of the growing process is getting tested and to see how, what you're going to do. Take things into your own hands or are actually going to pray about it and say, Lord, vengeance is yours, you'll repay. And here's the test, what are you going to do? That's what's going on in this chapter here. They're tempted. Assyria is the superpower of its day. They've already taken out the north, and now they're coming against. The war drums are sounding, and they're actually on their way to Jerusalem. And so now Isaiah is speaking to them, and he's, my title here in chapter 30 is Woe to the Egyptian Alliance. So these two chapters largely are a local situation. Although a larger prophecy of a future time grows out of it, the local prophecy has been fulfilled literally. In other words, this has already been fulfilled, but it's still future tense to them as it's being given to them. The southern kingdom of Judah heard and heeded the prophet's warning and did not join in with Egypt in order to be delivered from the Assyrians. The northern kingdom of Israel made the mistake of ignoring the prophet's warning, and they did go into the captivity with the Assyrians. This is one time when the southern kingdom profited by the experience of the northern kingdom. In other words, they learned a lesson by watching somebody else. Says, I'm not going to make that mistake. All right, let's get into it. Woe to the rebellious children, children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not from me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have asked and not asked for my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were as uh, Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Hanus, and they were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them, or be a help or a benefit, but a shame and also a reproach the burden against the beasts of the south. Though a land of trouble and anguish, from which came uh, the lioness and the lion, the viper, the fiery uh, flying serpent, they will carry their riches on the backs of their own donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not benefit them. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab Hem Shabeth. Now go, write it down before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that it may be for a time to come, forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, a lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, but tell us smooth things. Uh, prophesy deceits. You know, the equivalent today would be um, that in the last days, clearly we're warned people will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, they couldn't endure taking an hour on a Wednesday night and go chapter by chapter through several chapters of Isaiah. They won't endure it. But rather, it says they will gravitate towards teachers having itching ears, not literally like this, <laughs> but tell me what I want to hear. Don't tell me the truth. Don't read, don't read the latest current events, what's happening and unfolding in the Middle East. That's all bad news. It sounds like a, a lot of people in tragedy. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But it's the truth. And it's happening and, and it's un- unfolding rather quickly. Speak to us smooth things. Tell us things we want to hear. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from being before us. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, 
because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall and a bulge in a high hill. Whoever's breaking comes suddenly in an instant and he shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. Uh, So there shall not be found among us a fragment, a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you will be saved. In other words, now if if you only turn to me, instead of looking for worldly help, and Egypt would have been the other world power for help at this time, if you'd only come and return to me. These are some of the greatest scriptures for memorizing in the entire Bible right here, these verses. In returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. Boy, does that smack of what Jesus said to Israel when they came. He said, I wanted to be like a mother hen, and I wanted to gather you unto myself, but you wouldn't come. You wouldn't do it. And that's what he's saying here. He said, if you'd only call on me, if you'd only trusted me, you'd find that confidence and strength, but you would not. Matter of fact, the cross-reference is there in Matthew 23, 37. And he said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. And at the threat of five, you shall flee. Till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain, as a banner on a hill. Therefore, the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted, that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are those who wait for him. And gang, that's what we're doing right now. Um, We're not getting involved with worldly things that would take our time and our money. But we want to be about our Father's business. And so up to these verses here, up to verses 18, this great last verse of just waiting and trusting in the Lord. Now, beginning with verse 19 through 36, we switch gears again and notice that he's warning them all the way up to this time, don't go to Egypt. He says, but even though you're you're not gonna do what I want you to, I'm going to be gracious and show mercy on you. So in these verses, 19 through the rest of this chapter, um, we're talking about, again, the kingdom age. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, Yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And wherever you turn to the right hand or wherever you turn to the left, you will also defile the covering of your graven images of silver and the ornaments of your molded images of gold. You're going to throw them away as an unclean thing. You'll say to them, get away. Then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and the bread of the increase of the earth it will be fat and plenteous and that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground uh, will eat curd fodder which has been winnowed with the shovel and van. And there will be on every high mountain and every high hill and river and the streams of water, and that day of that great slaughter when the tower falls. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold. 
and the light of seven days, in the day that the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. And behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and a burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches to the neck uh, to sift the nations which sever um, for futility and they shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. Uh, You shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept, and gladness of heart is when one goes with a flute to come to the mountains of the Lord, to the mighty one of Israel. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descendants of his arm with the indignation of his anger. So again, we have the coupling, ending of the tribulation, going into the kingdom age, and with the flame of devouring fire will scatter tempests and hailstones Um, for through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down who struck with a rod. Now it gets specific talking here about Assyria. 27 through 33, and in every place will be the staff of punishment passes which the Lord lays on him. It will be with tambourines and harps and the battles of the banished he will fight with it For Tophet was established of old. Yes, for the king is prepared. He has made it deep and large. His prey is fires with much wood. And the breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. All right. In these verses here, um, we find uh, the Assyrian here is the final enemy of God. Let's go to the battle. Again, the warning not to go down. I'm going to paraphrase 31 because it is a continuing thought. So bear with me. And let's just read it quickly and wind it up because it's one continuing thought. Woe to those again who would go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust is in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he who is wise will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will rise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And when the Lord stretched out his hands, both he who helps will fall and he who helps will fall down. They will all perish together. For the Lord has spoken to me as a lion roars, as a young lion over his prey, When a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. Like birds flying about, so the Lord of hosts will defend Jerusalem. Defend, and he will also deliver it. Passing over it, he will preserve it. Return to him, against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall throw away his idols of silver and gold, which his own hands have made for themselves. Notice this verse. Then Assyria will fall by a sword not of man. A sword not of mankind shall devour him. Now we're talking the most powerful country in the world. And what these last two chapters, 30 and 31, are primarily saying, don't make the mistake that your sister in the north made. They didn't listen. But if you wait on me and trust in me, then I'll deliver you, and it won't be with a man's sword. And his young men will become forced to labor, and he will cross, he's talking about the king now of Assyria, he will cross over his stronghold for fear, and the prince shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Last verse tonight is in chapter 37, where we find the fulfillment of everything that we just read. So just flip a couple pages over. The Lord will defend and preserve Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is now king when when the Assyrians actually come down. They do lay siege. 
They completely surround, the most powerful army in the world completely surround Jerusalem. And the Lord says, don't go to Egypt. We would say today, don't trust in your own resources to get the job done. But actually pray and trust the Lord. And that's what he's asking them to do. And this is what Hezekiah does. He, he goes in and he prays to the Lord because he's scared to death. And Isaiah comes into him and he says, I don't want you to worry about a thing. Not one arrow is going to come in to this city. And everybody here is going to be fine in the morning. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 33. And this is really a test of faith. Therefore, thus says the Lord, chapter 37, 33, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow therein, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege bond against it. By the way that he came, he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it, because I prophesied, remember Isaiah, back in chapter 31, He says, don't worry about it. It ain't going to happen. Many nations are going to come. But Hezekiah was a godly king, and he prayed. He says, I will do it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And here's what happened, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping the god of Nisroch, his god, that his sons struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Ezehardan, his son, reigned in his place, exactly as the Lord had said. Let's stand and we will pray. Lord, in these chapters that we studied tonight, the application is all too clear. It's not only a history lesson of what has been, but also what it's going to be. And over and over again, Lord, you, you talk about the tribulation, the kingdom age, and having that perspective, knowing that you have a plan and nothing can change it, causes us to stand in awe and wonder of this book. And Lord, help us be more like Hezekiah, when we're in dire straits or going down for the third time when we don't know what to do and our faith is being tested, that we actually wait upon you, have that quiet confidence, and pray, Lord, that you'll be strong on our behalf. So thank you for your word tonight. I just pray you bless your people as we go out. These things I pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.